Amen. Good morning. Joshua, we're going to look at chapter 3 and 4. Joshua, last week, the two spies have returned from Jericho, the surrounding areas, and they bring back encouraging news. The whole uh, vicinity, the whole nation of Jericho and the Canaanites, their hearts are melting with fear because of the God of Israel. And so as Joshua hears this news, he begins to carry out the divine plan of God. And we have to understand that this is a new generation that's going into the promised land. And so they are excited. I'm sure they remember that their parents, everyone beside Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness wandering. Uh, First Corinthians tells us it was because of unbelief that they didn't get to enter into the promises of God. And so verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us, then Joshua rose early in the morning. That's always good practice, to, to rise up early in the morning and do your morning devotion and read your scriptures and meditate on the Lord and of his kindness, his goodness, and his mercy. It says that in chapter 6, verse 12, that Joshua rose early, chapter 7 and chapter 8. So that is what Joshua does. And that's what every believer, before we do anything, we should get up and get into the scriptures. It says, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. They're in Shittim. They go, they say it's about an eight-mile trek to the floodplains. And by now, the, the, the River Jordan has just went all over the floodplain. So it's really no safety there. And I think they go about seven miles because we're going to find out that the Ark of the Covenant, they have to stay away about a half a mile from its presence. So they probably go seven miles. And it says in verse two, so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And they go about a half mile away. And I'm sure if you've ever been to a river or to a stream and and the waters, a waterfall, before you get there, you hear the rushing of the water. You hear the, just the, the brute force and power of just the stream. So imagine the Jordan River at this time, a mile away, they can hear the rushing of the water. And the Lord brings them there, and they sit there for three days. And I'm sure the kids are beginning to say, Mommy, Daddy, how are we going to cross this river? And all that does, you know, is bring anxiety to the parents Because they, you know, kids, they say things over and over again. Three days, Joshua brings them to the border of the Jordan, and they sit there. I I believe the, the, the officers and the men of the children of Israel, they begin to ask Joshua, okay, Joshua, what's the plan? They don't know that Joshua doesn't even know the plan right now. I'm sure they're saying Sharpen your swords and tighten your bows. We're about to go and fight the Canaanites. They say nothing about building barges, building boats, or inventing the jet ski. They they don't think anything about those things. All they have at the banks of the Jordan is not only the anticipation of how they're going to cross the Jordan, but the apprehensiveness that's building up of how they're going to cross 
the Jordan. And you better believe that the, the, the people in Jericho, they are looking at the walls, over the walls, and they're seeing this rushing river, and they're scoping out what this God of Israel is going to do. Verse 3 tells us, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, Joshua wants them to understand that this God is their God, and the priest, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. The ark of the covenant is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. The Holy Spirit refuses to let us get our eyes off this Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the presence of God. The presence of God is going to go before them. They're no longer following the fire by day and the pillow by night. They're no longer following this great man, Moses. Once again, this is a new generation, and this will be a new experience for them. They will be following the Ark. We know that the Ark of the Covenant, once again, is a sign of God's presence among his people. And God is reminding the children of Israel that it is he who is going to lead them. It's going to be his hand that stops the waters of the Jordan River and holds them back. The whole venture that's about to take place is God's feet. And the children of Israel, though they are active, they're really just spectators in the whole thing. They're really just following the order that the Lord has for them. And God wants to make sure the children of Israel is aware, not of their work, but his work. He says, yet there shall be a space between you and it, the ark about 2,000 cubits by measure. Once again, 3,000 feet, a mile and a half. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. The reason there's this great distance between the ark and the children of Israel, the main difference uh, reason is the Lord wants them to see this great event that's about to take place. If they're piled together all around the priests and around the ark, they're not going to see this great stupendous feat that God is about to do. So the Lord says, stay about a half a mile away from it. Also, and I don't think it goes so much with this, but another reason is God is a holy God. The presence and the majesty and the awesomeness of God is there around this ark, in this ark. This is the presence of God. And they need to honor that also. I'm reminded in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has been mourning because the ark is not with him in Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, David says, let's go get the ark. And he goes with many of his men and, they're, as they're, uh, and they put the ark on a new cart. And as they're going along, it says, can you imagine this? Every five, six paces, they're sacrificing animals and continuing to go to Jerusalem. They're praising the Lord in everything, but all of a sudden, Scripture tells us that the oxen tripped or stumbled, and Uzzah, who was around the ark, put his hand on the ark, and this is what it said, God struck him down because of his error. The Lord says, you made an error by touching the, the ark. My point, we should have a reverence for Almighty God. I don't like particularly when people say the man upstairs. Most of the time it comes from the lips of unbelievers, but I still don't have to like it. And what I really don't like is when I see a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. I kind of get what they mean by that. 
But more than anything else, the cherubim around the altar of God says nothing, speaks nothing about his love and his mercy and his grace. But they do speak of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so we have to understand what Joshua is saying and what God is letting Joshua know that I'm a holy God. So keep your distance. He says, for you have not passed this way before. Verse 5 tells us, and Joshua said to the people, knowing that God is a holy God, he says, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Once again, he does not tell them to sharpen their swords, get their shields ready, get their grappling hooks ready. He says, this is what you need to do. Sanctify yourselves. And this is necessary for every believer to be successful in their walk with the Lord. We must sanctify ourselves, set ourselves apart to be used by the Lord. James puts it this way in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And when that word enmity is not enemies, enemies can be reconciled to one another. If you're at enmity with something, there's no reconciliation. This is just the way it is. The Bible says we're in this world, but we're not of it. So let's not cozy up to it. Let's not get too fond of the way the world runs things. We are supposed to be set apart for God's use. So he says, sanctify yourselves. It's not about the children of Israel's strength. It's not about their MMA skills they may have honed. It's not about their institute of the study of war degrees they might have. It's all about setting yourself apart, being a, a, a useful vessel for the Lord, and he will work in you and through you when you do that. These are lessons for us to learn. Moses puts it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 23. Then he brought us out, speaking of God, from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. That's a profound truth that he tells us here. When the children of Israel, we know, when they came out of Egypt, it was by the blood of the Lamb, and it was on the night of the Passover. And once again, that's a picture for us of salvation being brought out of Egypt. But God just didn't save us for us to kick back and wait to go to heaven. Once again, if he did that, he would just save us and take us home. We should never be in neutral in the kingdom of God, no matter if you're eight or 108. If you're still here, God wants you doing something for his kingdom. He says he brought us out so that he could bring us into the promises of God that we are to enter into. Once again, that's the promised land for the believer entering in all of the, into all of the blessings the Lord has for us. And those blessings are for the here and now. Now, there are some for the future, but mainly the blessings he's speaking of is while we are on this earth, spiritual blessings that will help us mature and become more and more like Jesus Christ. My life has been changed if I'm a believer in Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So he brought us out to bring us in. He wants us to live out who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way, you are epistles written in the hearts known and read by men. When I go to the grocery store, I, I always try to find the line with the least amount of people in. And it's, believe it or not, people today still write checks. And that just gets me. If I'm, 
I'm behind someone who has to take out a checkbook and have to flip through it and then write the check. And I'm thinking, come on, get a debit card, get a credit card, get something. Hey, but I remind myself, especially when I have a Christian T-shirt on. That's why I wear so many Christian T-shirts, because I'm susceptible. Oh, I'm getting upset. Then I look down and say, oh, gosh, they know I'm a believer, so I better do the right thing. Plus, I have the Holy Spirit residing in me, telling me this, to be patient. We are supposed to leave off the works of darkness. Those things are to fall behind us as we grow into the image of Jesus Christ. So God brought us out and washed us in the blood of his son that we might bring, he might bring us into the newness of life, Colossians tells us. Bring us into a different experience in this world while we're waiting on Jesus' return. And once again, that's a picture of the crossing into the promised land. Listen, and God wants us to know that the way we enter into these things is the same way that we came out of Egypt. The same way we're going to enter into the promises of God, not by striving, not by working, It's the same way we left Egypt, by a miracle. All of this is done. It's God's working. It's God's doing. He does it all. We don't deserve it, and we don't earn it. It's all by the grace of the living God. And so for you and I, in order for us to enter into these promises that the Lord has given us, We are just as dependent on him as when he saved us as we are when we are entering into these promises of God. All we need to do is stick close to him. As chapter 2 spoke of, being in his word, meditating on his word, and then we will begin to possess the promises of God. He says in verse 6, Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and cross over before the people. So they went, so they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. Now I want you to stick with me here. Because in the book of Numbers, chapter 4, we're told that the Koahites, who were Levites but not priests, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So the Koahites, their job after Aaron and his sons would go into the tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant and the showbread and the table of incense were there. They would cover up, cover up everything, break down the tent, and then here comes the Koahites after everything has been covered up, and they would grab the Ark of the Covenant, and carry it to its next destination. So it was the Koahites who always did this, but it was always covered. But here it specifically says the priests are carrying the Ark. And so as the Ark is going before the children of Israel, I wonder, is it covered? a half a mile away, no more pillar. I wonder, is the Ark of the Covenant just glistening in that near eastern sun? They had never been this way before. And as they're watching that, I bet this new generation is saying, we are about to cross into the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spoke of these things. They're not here, but we are about to enter into all of these promises. So they may be a little apprehensive still, but they are excited. It tells us in verse 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. I love God. He is not a respecter of persons. Uh, Joshua goes and tells his officers everything the Lord has told him to say, except that, hey, look, you guys, I'm going to be exalted. If that was me, I would say, hey, look, you guys, I'm a, they're about to exalt me. I want you to know that. And then everything else. Just joking. But Joshua, he's a humble guy. I want us to see that this is important given the crisis over Moses' death. Remember, they just fell apart. When Moses passed away, what are we going to do? God has left us all of these things. And it was crucial that Joshua feel he felt secure in his position and that the children of Israel knew that Joshua was competent in leading this two to three million people. This is on my heart, so I'll say it. When we had that little skirmish at CR, some said we should have did this, some said we should have did that, even though PV stood right up here and said, hey, you guys, I want us to pray because the pastors and the elders are making a decision. So you guys pray about it. I did the right thing. The leaders, the pastors, and the elders did the right thing. God knows we did the right thing. So things like this with Joshua does not show up when things are going well. They show up when things are trying to go sideways. My point is it didn't matter. It wasn't about who he was bringing down. All the eyes, it was about my decision. My decision and the leaders, the pastors and the elders' decision. So if they had a problem with anything, the problem they had was with the leadership. So when I hear this about Joshua, I understand. Because Joshua is about to be exalted because he's following the Lord. And that's all the Lord asks of his children. Go to him in prayer, wait on his word, and then follow him. Joshua is leading the people, doing exactly what the Lord wants them to do. It says in verse 8, you shall command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant, saying, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord, your God. He tells them again, this God is your God. Hear the word of the, of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If we want to increase our faith, we must be in the word. And Joshua said, by this, you shall know that the living God is among you. He says that the Holy Spirit makes sure we understand that Yahweh is a living God, because when they cross the Jordan River, all of this polytheism, and they're worshiping all different kinds of gods, but they're dead gods. They're not real gods. And what he's wanting the children of Israel to understand, you serve a living God. He says, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Parasites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over, notice, not behind you, not beside you, but before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, because you understand that, Take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest. Notice how what it says uh, he will do. He will rest. He's not apprehensive. He's not agitated. He's not worried that he's not going to come through. The Holy Spirit says he will rest. In the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. 
the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. I'm sure the, the Lord says, you got that, Joshua? And I'm sure the, the officers and the men of Israel, they begin to say, is, is that the plan? How would you feel if you were one of the priests who were carrying the ark? You must have faith in him. Once again, the, the water is rushing. We're talking about white caps. The water is coming down from Mount Arbol and Mount Hermon, melted, going all the way. It's out into the flood plains by now, about a half a mile wide. They're about to cross this river, and it's rushing and it's running hard. It says when the water would go into the flood plains, you would have all of the brush and the briars and everything else in the flood plains. So crossing that would be hard just by all of the brush in it. But God is going to make a way. As I'm thinking about this water being heaped up, I think about the Hoover Dam. They said the Hoover Dam is 726 feet high. And as this water begins to back up, I wonder how high was this pile of water? We have to use our imagination on that, but I bet it was high. The Lord wanted them to see it. It was visible because God wants every Israelite to understand how great of feet, how great of a God they serve. He wants this impression to be made in their heart. Even though Moses is not there, God is still with them. So he tells us in verse 14, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan at the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water. And then the Holy Spirit tells us again what's happening. For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam. The only time the, the, the Scripture speaks of this town of Adam in the Scripture and it's identified about 16, 17 miles up from the place where the children of Israel will be crossing. It says, the city that is beside Zeratan, so the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. When the priest's feet hit the water, the water starts to pile up by the city of Adam. The waters that's coming down, they deplete, disappearing down to the Dead Sea. By the way, that means the Jabbok and all of the tributaries, they shut off also. You know, some scholars I like to read because they dig into the archaeological part of it, but they try to explain away the miracle of God. I don't like that about them. So, I have to take that with a grain of salt because they start think, saying all of the reasons why the Jordan was shut off at this time. And it's because after this happened, about in 1907, there was an earthquake and the banks collapsed and it stopped the Jordan about, they said, six hours. That was in 1267. It also happened in 1906, the same thing. But in 1927, the flood banks and the earthquake stopped the Jordan, they say, for about 21 hours. But this never happened in flood stage the way Joshua is going through it. So if we consider all of these factors of how did it happen, why did it happen, but I know that it happened because of a supernatural feat exploit by the Lord. I'll give you some uh, examples. It happened 
This is a miracle because it happened as it was predicted. Number two, the timing was exact. It took place once again at flood stage. Number four, the wall of the water was held in place for many hours, possibly an entire day. Number five, the soft waterbed, the scripture tells us they passed across it as on dry land. And then number six, the most important, and the water returned immediately when the priest's soles of the soles of their feet hit Canaan. So they can explain and try to explain all they want of how God didn't do this. But this is a supernatural exploit from God. And unless you're an unbeliever, that's why unbelievers believe this, because they don't believe the workings of Almighty God. You know, our tendency is we try to uh, punify God, and that's not good. Our God is only as big as we can think he is. That's why we have the scriptures. Because, oh, my God can't do this. My God can't heal anymore. My God can't redeem a man who's been in sin for 32 years. But Jehovah can. And there's no problem. He has no issue in doing those things. Now, about this town called Adam, what does it mean for us spiritually? What keeps the believer once again from entering the promises of God sometimes is the things that flow from Adam. And that's our carnal nature. The things that flow from the natural man so often are the things that stand in the way of us entering the promised land. So as Paul the apostle says, we must put to death the carnal man daily by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He has empowered us to live victorious Christian lives, to walk with the Lord. And you know, the only reason we don't obtain the promises of God is because we allow the carnal man to have his way too often. But if we were to walk by his spirit as the Holy Spirit has called us to, all of these promises once again is yes and amen in Christ. He tells us in verse 17, then the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm, notice what it says, not on muddy ground, not on soggy ground, but dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Chapter 4 is going to speak on the remembrance, remembering the things that Yahweh has did, which is so important in our lives. We need to remember how the Lord saved us from our sins, how he has provided for us and continues to do those things. He's a faithful God. He's a kind God, and he wants them to remember that. We observe a certain assumption operating in verses 1 through 10. And what we need to understand is the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of our faith is forgetfulness. It's, it's sort of like a marriage. The great issue of a marriage might not be infidelity all the time, but simply a slow process of forgetting and a gradual failure to remember the preciousness of the other person. That's what God is wanting the children of Israel to understand this is what I've done for you. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe and command them saying, take for yourselves 12 stones 
from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder. So it must have been pretty good sized stone according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be, listen, a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you, Daddy? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel. I'm not sure about your translation of verse 6. The King James says that when your children ask their fathers, because fathers is in italics in the New King James, but your makes it masculine, so It insinuates the fathers. But if you look at verse 21, there will be no doubt. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers, there it is, in time to come, saying, What are these stones? So we have a lesson, a very important lesson that the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And I want us to take note that it doesn't say if the children ask. It says when the children ask. They're going to do it. And very specifically, it says when they ask their fathers, not the priests, not the Levites, not the Sunday school teacher, not the pastor, but their fathers. I'm thankful that I had a a dad in the home. Some days I wondered, was I thankful? (laughs) But I'm thankful that I had a dad in the home. There's a huge problem in our nation, in our culture, with absentee dads. That's that's been a problem for a while. And I want to say, Thank you, Lord, for single moms. We pray for them. I think of Zaholafad. Those women, those girls got their inheritance in the promised land. And so I'm thankful for single moms. But absentee dads, not only the homes where there is no father in the home, but how many homes has a father And the father does not take responsibility to do these things. That's just as sad. Proverbs 17, 6, and I've gotten there because I have grandkids. It says, children's children are the crown of old men. And the glory of children is their father. Amen to that. I'm thankful for that. That's the way it is in my life. There's a God-given responsibility we have as dads, you guys. And every memorial that God establishes, he establishes for the future generation. That's why he does that. I tell you guys, I watch the news all the time. Well, I was watching Jesse Waters, but Jesse wasn't in. Pete Headset was in, and I was cleaning the house, and he says, well, I'm about to give a monologue. Uh, I hope I can get an amen out of it. And so when the, when the news came back on from the commercial, I sat down and said, let me see what this dude's going to say, because he says he's a believer, and I believe he is one. This is the Pew Research Survey. United States adults identifying as Christians 
Now, I laugh at this, especially in 1990. It said that 90% adults in America profess that they are believers. We can laugh at that. Come on. But check this out, how it begins to decrease. In 2007, 78% of adults said they were Christians. In 2022, 64% say that they are believers. That's a great drop. Our culture reflects this drop. And why is it? I believe all of the blame goes to ourselves, especially dads. This is part of Pete Hesek's monologue. He says, I often hear parents and grandparents say, I worked hard so that my kids would live better than I did and have what I didn't have. I heard that growing up. The World War II generation fought a world war so that our kids wouldn't have to. So their kids could live in peace and prosperity. Previous generations of Americans did a great job passing along peace, prosperity, leisure, entertainment, and progress in medicine, science, and technology. They passed those things to their posterity. But along the way, previous generations passed along all, along all the wants of the world and not enough of the need. They took for granted the main ingredients that underwrites all of, all of those worldly achievements. And that's the faith. Faith in something greater than ourselves. To believe that God is the architect of our future and the bedrock of our blessings. He says nothing else matters or even makes sense without a sincere reckoning with our creator. He closes, it's the single most important thing I can teach my kids. I could step down now, but I'm not. I'm going to finish this chapter. But remember that. Verse 6, the latter part says this, that this may be a sign among you, All the way to Jesus' days, it tells us that John the Baptist was baptizing in Bethabara, and that, that place is called the place of the passage traditionally where they said the children of Israel crossed the Jordan. The Pharisees, the Sadducees were coming out to John, and Matthew 3, 9 tells us this. John tells them, and do not think to to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up these stones, these stones to Abraham. I believe he was pointing to these 12 stones on that side of Canaan. Jesus says, This is supposed to be a memorial, something that reminds us. Because if you're like me, the farther I go from what I used to think was a miracle or something, I begin to think, well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it didn't work that way. We have a tendency to forget. But God is saying, I want you to remember this. Not only to remember this, but to tell your children of this. And, and, and he's talking about this raw, visible, miraculous sign that he does, heaping the waters of the Jordan up and the children of Israel passing over. And he tells them to remember this. And the reason he tells them to remember is because miracles don't happen every day. I wish they did, but they don't happen every day. And so how 
God Almighty wants them to remember is word of mouth, is by the scriptures. That's why it's important that we are in the scriptures so we can look back and say, wow, look at the miracles God did. And look how awesome our God is. And if God can bring this stubborn, stiff-necked children of Israel into the promises of God, into Canaan, he can do the same thing for me. If I keep my eyes on him, if I don't go by things that are seen, but things that are unseen, oh yeah, my marriage might not be exactly how I want it, and I might be struggling here and there, but I keep my eyes on the Lord, and I read my own mail. I don't, I don't read Lydia's mail. And sometimes I'm tempted to, but I have to read my own. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I have to, she has to read her own when it comes to wives. Honor, submit to your husband. God, you have to handle her. All you want me to do is read my own mail and claim those promises God's hand is not too short that he still can't heal and do great miracles in families, in marriages, in all of those things. We just, we have to stretch out our hand like Jesus told the man with the withered arm. If he would have never tried, he would have never been healed. But he took one step after the other and God did a miracle there. God is faithful. He tells us in verse 6 that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them. The Hebrew says, you must, literally, you must answer them. That the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, not by an earthquake, not by any kind of hocus pocus, But by God's supernatural arm, when it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel. How long? Forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan as the Lord has spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. They go, they move to their camp at Gilgog. Then Joshua set up 12 stones. I believe what Joshua did, this is my opinion, he takes 12 stones from the Jordan moves them to Gilgog, sits them up. Then he gets 12 stones from the land of Canaan, and he puts them into the Jordan. Where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day when the writer is writing these things. Memorials. Jesus says, as often As you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The believer's great memorial. He doesn't say, remember when I walked on water? Remember when I cast out those seven demons from Mary Magdalene? Remember when I calmed the storms? He said, no, don't even worry about that. He says, but remember how my body was broken and my blood was shed for you. He says, you need to remember that. And he says, the reason you need to remember that, Vic, is because when hard times come and they will come, keep living, you say, if you did all of that for me, Jesus, you love me and you will keep me. You love me. I know you love me. You demonstrated your love toward me. That while I was yet sin, we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I know you love me. And I know you're going to keep me. And you're going to bring me through anything that might be happening in my life. The great memorial. Once again, we can quickly forget things. 
In the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, I'm going to show you one generation they forget. It says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. I would love living to 110 if I had Joshua's strength. And they buried him with the, within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. One generation. One generation. You know, that kind of hits my family a little. Because when we were growing up as kids, Christmas, Thanksgiving, we always took turns going to each other's home. We, we, we have a, had a large family, and so no matter if it was in Atlanta or they'd come down to Decula, if it was South Georgia, for Thanksgiving especially, we would meet. But as my mom's generation, because she had about eight, it was about eight girls and two boys, and so we'd take turn at the ten homes. But as they started falling by the wayside, most of them, if not all, going to the kingdom, the next generation, because we were so dispersed at the time, you know, besides Thanksgiving, Christmas, we didn't see them. And it's amazing how we don't do that anymore. We don't gather together anymore. And then when COVID came, oh, that knocked us down big time. And I've told you guys before, because I'm a little nosy. When I get online and I look at churches that don't have Wednesday evening service, I'm blown away. I'm blown away because many of them don't have Wednesday midweek service. And I've told you before, I think about the times when we had Sunday evening service. Sunday evening service. I think about the times growing up, we would have week-long revivals. And when I spoke to my mom before COVID, she says, oh, son, we don't have week-long revivals anymore. We have two days revival. (laughs) I'm saying, man, we have to worry. But hey, be careful of the enemy. We need to bring back to remembrance that ancient faith that is still required for today. We can't let complacency be our enemy. We must press into the promises of the Lord here. Charlie Kirk said this, as America has become more secular over the last 40 years, so I can testify to that, we have become less free, less happy, more anxious, more depressed, and more medicated. And it's because we have removed our great God out of the public square. That's why every believer here is here for a reason. I'm talking about on planet Earth. To share the gospel, to walk uprightly, to do the things that make people look and say, hey, they must be from a different planet. We're from a different kingdom. That's why we're here. And that's why the Lord wants them to remember what he's doing. He says in verse 10, so the priest who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed over. I'm sure they did. The last bunch, I'm sure they just ran through the Jordan. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed over in the presence of the people. They were the first to enter, the last to leave. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over 
armed before the children of Israel as Moses has spoken to them about 40,000. Remember, the book of Numbers said they had about 176,000 men. 96,000 stayed on the eastern side. Only 40,000 crosses over into Canaan, into the promised land. Their kids that's on the eastern side, they didn't see this mighty feat of the Jordan. They did not see the walls of Jericho come falling down. Oh, what faith that would have built up. They did not see the sun and the moon in the valley of Agilon standing still. That's sad. But what I, what I want us to know and understand is they're still going to have war on the eastern side, just like they're going to have war on the western side. The only issue is the presence of the Lord is with them on this western side. If we're going to go to war, if we have to battle anyway, we might as well battle with the Lord. And the sad thing about this, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they are the first ones to be carried away with the Assyrians into bondage. They did not walk that close with the Lord. It says, about 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord to battle to the plains of Jericho, for verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. They knew that Joshua was the Lord's man, that the Lord had ordained him. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and, over, and overflowed all its banks as before. Wow. When the children of Israel, after the water came back together and they looked across to the eastern side, there was no more manna. There was no more manna. There was no more fire by day and cloud by night. There was no more Moses. But there was a new beginning. And I don't know about you guys, but I love new beginnings because I fumble. I drop the ball sometimes. And it's nothing more refreshing to get on my knees and say, Lord, forgive me. I said something I shouldn't have said. I thought something I shouldn't have thought. And to hear, hear him say, you are forgiven, those mercies are renewed each and every morning. Great is the Lord's faithfulness. It's nothing like a new beginning. The worship team can come up. That's what's happening now. They are about to go and begin to possess the land. Verse 19 tells us, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, four days before Passover. And they camped in Gilgog on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgog, rolling away. That's what Gilgog means. Then he spoke to the children of Israel. He repeats this twice, saying, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the people of the earth, that's you and I this morning, may know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
This is the same God who still works in our lives. I'll close with this. If you take anything away from this, before they crossed the Jordan, Joshua told them, getting the word from the Lord, sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Walk up right before me. That's where the power comes from. That's where the strength comes from. That's where everything a believer needs comes from to undergird us and to keep us in hard times. Because God, he tells us he goes before us. So let's sanctify ourselves, you guys. Let's walk up right by the power of the Holy Spirit and watch and see what he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's not so much about miracles. You told us if we want to possess the promises of God, we must be in your word. We must be in prayer. We must allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in us. So, Father, give us grace. Increase our faith. Increase our belief in your great and precious promises that we may run through a brick wall if that's what you ask us to do because we know the living God of all the earth goes before us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close with the song.